Epcot Center is located in the center of Epcot. And Epcot Center is made up of two parts, which is Future World and the World Showcase. Hello there. Welcome to our little trans-dimensional joyride, folks. I'm Dr. Secret, your friendly controller and a heck of a paleontologist, if I do say so myself. Yes, it's a glorious three-hour finale. You got a minute and a half. <gasps> w Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 396 for the week of February 22nd, 2015. I'm here to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience and bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are with this podcast, videos, blog, live broadcasts, special events, books, audio tours, and more, whether you are a first-time visitor or you love the history, details, secrets, and stories, there is something here for you. You can check it all out over at www.radio.com and learn how you can help support the show and be a member of WW Radio Nation, where you can get access to exclusive content, custom magic band covers, scavenger hunts, logo gear, care packages, and lots more. Find out more by visiting www.radio.com support. So this week, I invite you to join me on a virtual walking tour of the Real World Showcase, recorded live as I walked the promenade in Epcot. I'm joined by world traveler Gary Arndt, who sold his house and travels the world for a living, visiting more than 170 countries in the past eight years. He joins me and helps compare how accurate the World Showcase representations of the nations, cultures, and food are to their original regions. We also do a little imagineering of our own and envision what nations or regions and food we would like to see added to World Showcase. And then I'll ask you to share your own with me in the comments or on Twitter. I'll have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned for more announcements, including upcoming meets and events, as well as your voicemails at the end of the show. So sit back relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. In order to provide guests the level of immersive storytelling that is Disney's hallmark the levels of attention to detail have to be incredibly accurate. From the villages in Africa to the Hollywood in its golden age to the mountains of Nepal, Disney goes through an amazing level of exhaustive research to ensure an amazing sense of realism. This holds true certainly for where I'm standing right now, which is in the middle of World Showcase in Epcot Center. More than simply a World's Fair, the promenade affords guests the opportunity to virtually wander the world and experience cultures, food, architecture, and people that they might not otherwise have ever encountered. But just how realistic is World Showcase? In the past, we've done very detailed looks at the United Kingdom and Norway with residents of those countries 
but today I want to take it a step further and compare the other Walt Disney World versions to the real thing. And in order to do so, I need to be joined by someone who literally has seen and done almost it all. His name is Gary Arndt, and he is the founder and the host and the author and every other word of everything-everywhere.com. Thanks for having me, Lou. And I want to say, being at Disney World with Lou Mangiello <laughs> is like golfing with Tiger Woods. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> no, this is this is great. This is my uh, we're at Epcot. This is my fifth time at Epcot. I haven't been here in about ten years, uh, but since my last visit, I've been to 105 different countries, uh, almost 300 UNESCO World Heritage sites, and uh, I'm, I'm actually kind of glad to be back because I've always I've always loved coming to Disney. Yeah, and we've known each other for a few years. We met each other at. at I don't even know if it was New Media Expo or one of the travel conferences. And dare I say, man, you may be one of the most admired and envied homeless people in the world. <laughs> yeah, I, I started uh, almost eight years ago. I sold my house and I went to travel around the world for a year. And it's eight years later and I'm still doing it. Yeah, and, and when I said homeless, like it's true, like you literally travel all the time. Yeah. Uh, so last year I was in 40 different countries and territories. Uh, the year before, I think I was in 44. Uh, so this year alone, I was in, started the year in Spain, uh, took a trip to Finland, uh, went to the Olin Islands, been to Alberta, Wisconsin. Now I'm in Florida, and from here I'm going to go to Haiti, Dominican Republic, and I might go to Cuba. Yeah, why not? Because <laughs> just part of, and that's the thing that always fascinates me about you is is what you've been able to to do and see it. And you know, I think for a lot of people who love traveling. You really are kind of living that dream of sort of living out of your backpack. I'm sure it's not as glamorous as it, as it may seem all the time. But you, you know, you blog and you tweet and you've written books. I mean, you really sort of take taken this love of travel and turned it into a business. Yeah, I have. Uh, I never imagined it would start out that way. But, you know, just like you made a business out of Disney World, I've made a business out of being able to just travel around the world. Yeah. And I, I love it and uh, wouldn't want to do anything else. Cool. Yeah, and we always seem to run each other into each other in like Las Vegas or like odd destinations at some of the, the travel conferences. Yeah, I think uh, you were in Athens, right? No, I was in. Uh, I just was. We were in Cancun. We, just, we were in Cancun. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah cool. we were in Cancun. Yeah, Cancun. So I always see you at conferences, <laughs> and uh, uh, are you probably going to be in Vegas yeah, again? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. yeah, I'll be seeing you at some more. But um, yeah, I had talked about doing a show like this with you a couple years ago yeah. about. Uh, the, uh, what the what the real things at Disney are based on, and you know Epcot has so many of them, and I think there's a couple other ones we could talk about too at some of the other parks uh, that ring a bell. I don't know if you want to do we could do that first, or we could do that later. We could do why don't we do we'll do Epcot, and sure. uh, you know I think I think we could probably get a, a we could spend all day here doing this um, because, like I said, for a lot of us this is as far outside the country as we'll be able to travel. This is as close as we're going to get to a pyramid is sort of the Disney-fied version. And I think a lot of people wonder sometimes, you know, how close to reality is this sort of sense of fantasy? So obviously we're, we're here in Mexico. This is as good a place of any. Yeah, I mean, um, so at the Mexico Pavilion where we're standing right now, the primary feature is a very big pyramid. Um, and it, it's kind of generically a Mesoamerican pyramid. Um it was used by the Aztecs, it was used by the Mayans, it was used by a bunch of other groups in that region. And if you wanted to see something like this, uh, in fact, while we were at Cancun, I went to Chechen Itza, one of the seven wonders of the world, and probably the best preserved Mayan 
structure in the world. It's still in really, really good shape. And a lot of people don't realize that, you know, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, the, the mines are still there. The, 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 the civilization kind of collapsed, but the Mayan people are still there. So you can go and actually see these things. And uh, outside of Mexico City, in the northern parts of Mexico were the Aztecs, and they were really similar. And I don't know if you're going to find a pyramid quite like this. Um, this Usually they're going to be in ruins, but even if you go down to Guatemala, like in Tikal, you're going to find um, pyramids far larger than this. And in some places, like uh, I was at a, a, one of the sites in Honduras called Copan, the, the detail that you can see really good here on the walls, which is missing from a lot of the, the older structures, is still in really good condition. So, yeah, that, that's kind of where they got the... Um, I did a little bit of research before I came as far as what they based it on. And with a lot of these um, of the attractions here at the World Showcase, some are based on very specific things, and some are kind of representations of what you might expect to see in a, a regular thing. And I think this is one of them. I don't think this is based on any particular pyramid. It's just sort of a representation of the pyramids in the region. I think it's, I think it's more Mayan than Aztec, but... And like you said, I have to imagine, and Chichen Itza is one of those places that I'm, I am dying to go but didn't have time while we were in Cancun. I have to imagine that some of the other pyramids would dwarf this one. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is... This is actually quite small. If you were to go to someplace like Tikal, which is actually a really big site. I mean, Tikal is the size of Epcot, you know, uh, and there's a bunch of different pyramids. The biggest pyramid is probably two or three times larger than this. I think people don't realize, too, just how large some of the, they're not villages. I mean, these cities that, that were built, I mean, were huge. Yeah, I, I went to one, Coba, uh, which is actually just south of Cancun. And from there, you could actually see they had a system of roads, like paved roads. Uh, unfortunately, they had no wheels, and they had no horses. So it was basically used for uh, runners who would send messages and, and or you know bringing carts and stuff between the cities. But it was a really sophisticated culture. Yeah, I want to go to these places with you and Giorgio Sukalos, the ancient aliens guy, just to find out how they'd actually built some of these things. You know, I don't think it's... <laughs> The reason why we don't know is simply because a lot of the information was lost. And I think there's a tendency to say, well, we, you know, we, we think people of the ancient peoples, you know, weren't as sophisticated as us. So when we see something that's impressive, our tendency is to say, well, they couldn't have done that. It must be aliens. <laughs> uh, but in reality, if you just have a lot of time, um, you could do it. And there are people that have actually recreated. Uh, one guy rebuilt Stonehenge to scale, same size, by himself. Um, do it using nothing but uh, wood and stone. Really? Yeah. So he was able to move the, the bricks. He did it very slowly. So he would, like, put a, a rock underneath it, and he could then swing the, the big stone around, and he could just kind of inch its way, kind of like when you move a refrigerator. So they were able to do it like that. Same as Easter Island. They figured out how to move a lot of the stone heads. Um, didn't involve aliens. No. I was hoping you were going to say, well, it's just like the guy who built the, um, the Coral Castle down in yeah. South Florida. Yeah. Uh, same thing. I mean, you also have to remember that if you have enough manpower and time, you could probably do some, you know, yeah. incredible stuff. <laughs> uh, let's take a quick walk inside because the, uh, the inside of the pyramid where the restaurant and the attraction is, is really meant to represent sort of a, a small uh, Mexican shopping center and village. And I think for a lot of us, our experience of Mexican shopping center villages are maybe when we get off a cruise ship or, uh, you know, very touristy types of, of locations. And I'm curious just to sort of see 
because it's been so long since you've been here, when you take a look, what do you think about this as compared to the real thing? Hasn't changed much since I've been here. <laughs> um, but no, this is, um, I was in, a, in two years ago, I was in a city called Teclatelpan, which is just south of Veracruz. So it doesn't get a lot of tourists, and it's a kind of regular town. And the things that strike me are the uh, pastel colors that you see in the, in the buildings, which is also something you see in like South Florida and other tropical regions. You have the plaza, you have the fountain, uh, all Spanish, uh, you know, architectural things that you'll, you'll actually can see in Spain too, especially Andalusia if you go to that region. Um, so I think they've done a good job of capturing the spirit of, you know, what a, a, a small Mexican town might be. And the souvenirs and t-shirts. That's right. <laughs> So as we're making our way over to Norway, we were talking about how things really haven't changed very much in the decades since you've been here. But as you were just saying, Norway is about to change. The Maelstrom attraction is making way for uh, a Frozen-themed Anna and Elsa attraction, which sparked a little bit of debate and and controversy. Uh, The hope is and and the belief is that it'll still retain the idea of telling the story of, of the culture and the people of Norway but with sort of a, maybe using those characters and maybe using a bit of a, a Norway overlay. Uh, but I think this is one of the most beautiful pavilions on the outside. This was originally supposed to be a much larger Scandinavian showcase, and for a lot of reasons, it ended up um, being somewhat reduced to this. But one thing we were talking about as we were walking here was how you enjoy and you like the fact that the cast members that uh, are in these pavilions are native to those countries. Yeah, I noticed that the very first time I was here, and I think that was, it, it adds authenticity, obviously, uh, because they can answer questions and they can speak the language. I remember the first time I was here, I went to the France Pavilion, and uh, the, when they were, I figured it was a movie, I think they were doing, and she would correct everyone, she was trying to teach them French, and she'd say, ah, en français, and, um, yeah, I think that's great, and I, I remember going to the China Pavilion and, and seeing the acrobats, and it, it, that's something that if they were to just hire people to do it, it, it just would take away from it. And I think that having that level of authenticity, or even in the shops when they actually bring in products from that country, um, and I, I remember, I think it was in the Japan Pavilion, I remember seeing like even the candies and things like that were from that country. Um, those are the little things you see when you travel that you can't otherwise see uh, and, and they do that here and I really like it and I, I believe too and I agree with you that, that having the cast members here is a great learning opportunity not just for adults but especially if you bring <laughs> kids and they start asking questions they say don't ask me ask the cast members ask them how to say hello in their language ask them about the food ask them you know what, what is a day like for them where they live and getting back to the idea of food I think the one of the best ways to learn about a culture and learn about a people is through their food, and maybe one of these days we'll actually have a chance to pick one of the restaurants and sit and try to see how different it really is. But I like doing that. Um, one of my favorite videos I ever did was I went into Japan, and I grabbed a couple of the kooky-looking things off the shelf, and I ate dried crabs, and I haven't done the cuttlefish yet, but <laughs> I'm working up towards it. But it is, it's, it's a great way to experience the, the people. It is. Um, you know, and I hope that... I know a lot of people, if they come here, they're probably never going to visit every one of these countries. But I certainly hope that it serves as an incentive to maybe visit a couple of them uh, at some point in their life. Because I really think that you shouldn't view this as a replacement for visiting the country. 
but as a taste of, of what you're going to see. And obviously, it's kind of also stereotyped. You go to a major city in any city in the world, and it's, you know, there's going to be a commonality. It's, you know, the buildings and the cars and everything are the same. Um, but here's a good example. The, the, the stave churches in Norway, uh, there's only a couple of them left. Um, and I think they were actually all built without nails, the original churches. And this is a uniquely Norwegian thing, something you're really not going to see anywhere else. Yeah, and I agree. This is the opportunity. I think most people you see as they walk by, they don't realize that there's actually a little exhibit in there where you can learn about you know, Viking history and things like that. And what I loved about Maelstrom wasn't the attraction itself because it was a polar bear and it was uh, you know trolls and, and then you ended with a giant oil rig. But I thought the most beautiful part of that was the unload area, which was a, a small type of fishing village, which to me, that probably more closely represented what Norwegian tourism were like. That's what I wanted to go and see if I went to Norway. Yeah, and I think that um, the one thing they probably can't recreate here is a fjord. And to just see the mass, I mean, because the cliffs in some of these places are just, you know, more than a mile high. And it's just absolutely dramatic. Uh, believe it or not, this is actually, as I mentioned, Norway is one of the countries <laughs> I have not been to. It is the only country in Western Europe I have not been to, and that includes Liechtenstein, <laughs> Andorra, and every place else. I just have not, for whatever reason, made it to Norway. Yeah, and it's funny, because when Maelstrom was here, this is, you know, my dad would, we were, we actually would stay and watch the film, and my dad would always come out and actually want to do what the, what the pavilions were intended to do, which is, hey, he felt sort of motivated to want to go and see the country and one of our favorite details is on top of uh, the bakery there's that that grass roofs where they actually have real grass growing and and goats go up not in Disney World but goats go up there and help sort of trim the grass um, on the roofs there Um, he never made it and next time you go to Norway you have to come back and talk about it some more but as we walk from uh, Norway to China this is one of those locations that I think when we talk about countries that, you know, you're saying that you hope people are encouraged to visit, this is probably one that may be more difficult than some of the others for a, a, a typical American to go see because of the distance, because maybe of language barrier. But I have to assume that you've been to China before. No. Well, I've, been, I've been to Hong Kong. I've been to Macau. I've been to Taiwan. Haven't been to mainland China. Um, I was going to go in 2008. But they stopped issuing visas before the Olympics, and I just never made it. But it's uh, something I'm going to be doing quite soon, and I've actually been thinking about doing the Trans-Mongolian Railroad that goes from St. Petersburg to Beijing. How long, uh, now, I don't even know how long of a trip is that? Like three weeks. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, so. And that's cool. I mean, you, you literally don't necessarily have your every day of your calendar year planned out. You kind of just, just, just wing it along the way? Yeah, so 10 days, I know where I'll be. And then the month of March, don't know. Whatever you're feeling. I'll be in the Caribbean somewhere. Uh, I got conferences in April, and then, yeah, so I just kind of make a lot of it up as I go along. And how many countries total did you say you visited so far? 105 UN member countries, and then 172, if you include, like, territories and... Puerto Rico, Cook Islands, French Polynesia, things like that. So you're running out of places to, to check off the list. <laughs> the world's a big place. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, even even when you've been somewhere, you haven't really been there. There's always more to do. Every time I'm in London, there's always another neighborhood because I always stay in a different hotel, and it's a completely different experience every time I go. Do you have a favorite place that you enjoy going back to? 
There's a lot of places. I mean, a lot of times your visit depends on things like weather, who you meet, experiences you have. Um, you know, I always go back to London. I was just in Spain. Uh, I was in uh, Catalonia. I've been there many times. Um, Fiji is a place I like to go back to because it's it's very affordable. I think one of the it's a really overlooked destination. Um, yeah, I was just in Alberta. I was there this summer. I'm back there in the winter. I'm sure I'll be back there again in a few months. So there's, yeah, there's places I go back to. Uh, there's places I would like to go back to, like Japan. I was there in 2007. Spent a lot of, you know, I've spent over a month there. Um, but I'd like to go back because I've improved as a photographer. And I look back on my photos and I'm like, oh, I, I need to do better. Yeah, that's one of the places that's on my bucket list. Not just for Tokyo Disneyland and Disney Sea, but I, I love... Japanese culture. Take a look at me. I love Japanese food, but when I go, I want to do that. I want to spend three weeks there so I can really enjoy it. Uh, I'd love to go to China too. This is obviously a a replica of uh, the Temple of Heaven in Beijing. This is half the size of the original, and they really sort of tried to, to I don't want to say break the the pavilion down, but this is much more of the historical architecture. And then to the left, you sort of get more a sense of the small, very crowded shopping districts and streets, and then you also get a nice uh, example of the, the architecture that they use in the, the horticulture as well. Yeah, I, um, as I said, I've been to uh, Taipei, which is a Chinese city. It's politics, and I don't, I don't want to get into that. But uh, you can experience uh, going to the, t- the the design for the temples is very similar. Um, there was a place I was at in Taipei called the Longshan Temple same basic design um and uh after the the chinese civil war um all the nationalists that fled to to china took all the good art with them and so like the the museum in taipei actually is the best place to find a lot of the chinese art um yeah i I think this is a another really great example and what i like about this and the japanese is the use of symbolism and culture and color for example, and everything you, you go inside the temple, and the you know the, the number of columns and the colors that are used are, are very very deliberate and really have a deep meaning, and that's one of the reasons why you should talk to the cast members that are here and, and ask them to sort of you know peel back some of those layers of the onion a little bit. Yeah, and I, I I don't know if you know the answer, but when they designed this, did they have particular designers or architects for each section? Uh, were they from that? That's something I don't even know because I know that there was there's so much thought that has clearly been put into each one of these pavilions. Um, I kind of wonder if they were all designed separately or as part of the same team or how they did it. My understanding is that there are you know different disciplines in Imagineering. There are you know some that deal with color, some that deal with rock work, and there's a lot of extensive research that goes into. You know, creating this. I'm sure there probably wasn't one team. I'm sure there was lots of teams that went to to the other countries. And obviously, when we get to Morocco, that has its own sort of separate story because it's the one that that's unique to to all the other uh, pavilions that are here. Uh, you know, the other thing that was interesting is that when Epcot opened in the '80s, uh, China is, was a very different place than what it is now. So it's kind of interesting to see that as China has changed. Um, I don't recall this pavilion being that much different from from when I was first here. Um, But people's perception of China and certainly tourism to China has increased a lot. I think Shanghai now is one of the top five most visited cities in the world. The the pavilion's exterior hasn't really changed, but the film changed. Because I think as uh, it became more accessible 
to film in some locations there, they were able to get better footage than they had, you're right, when it opened in 1982. And uh, you mentioned before that this might be one of the more difficult places. I think this is the only country in the World Showcase that Americans need a visa to visit. Hmm. So I think all of the other ones, you can just show up. You just buy a ticket, yeah. But China, you need to apply for a visa beforehand. Is it difficult to get one? No. Like I said, I mean, tens of millions of people visit China every year. It's become a pretty standard thing at this point. And I think they've actually liberalized it now. So you can arrive in some cities like Shanghai and Beijing for 72 hours without a visa. Um, so it, it's been, the process has been being more and more liberal with how they give out the visas. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the future, maybe, the, the it tends to be a reciprocal thing with uh what country they're working with so it would probably involve the united states also and we've also made it easier for chinese to visit the united states as well so and obviously disney's building a park in shanghai so yeah that would probably i but yeah that's gonna bring a lot of us over there (laughs) oh i should also add the one thing i the last time i was here i remember is the acrobats that they had going on and um that was something that was unique to this pavilion that i've not quite seen i think there was uh uh, in the, the Italy pavilion, there you'll see some um, Venetian guys on stilts and in mass and things like that. But uh, the, the the level of technical involvement and skill required to do for the acrobats, I think, is something you don't really see at any of the other pavilions. Yeah, I agree. This that was actually one of my favorite acts. Um, and again, some of the the kids who were doing it were very very young, um, and it just made me realize how completely uncoordinated I really am. I don't know how old you are, but when I grew up. On Wide World of Sports all the time, they would have the Chinese acrobats of Taiwan, and they would do all you know all those sorts of stuff, and that's what it reminded me of. So as we're making our way over to Germany, we were just talking about, and you said, oh, you'd love to see an Africa pavilion here, and coincidentally, we're walking by the location of what was supposed to be uh, a very, very large, very detailed African pavilion. I think I've done a show really about sort of the World Showcase that never was, where Alex Haley and Danny Kaye promoted and advertised on the, the opening of Epcot TV special that the Africa Pavilion was coming the following year. A sign was on the promenade fort, along with Israel and Spain, that never got built. But we were sort of just, you know, armchair imagineering and talking about some places that we would potentially like to see uh, on here. And some of the places we were talking about were India and Egypt and uh, you know, Greece. What are some? What are some that you would like to see, and maybe some of the the visual icons that you could imagine here on the promenade? I think Australia is an easy one. Uh, you'd have Uluru, Ayers Rock, uh, the Sydney Opera House, um, the Harbour Bridge. Those are kind of the big ones, and maybe you could even do like the the attraction for that pavilion would be a big open water aquarium with coral reef and so like the Great Barrier Reef and where people can actually observe the coral and and fish and things like that. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the Atlantis Resort. They do something similar. It's just a big open water and you could you could pretty much pull it kind of pull it off in this climate um, because it's it's reasonably warm. Uh, Spain I think would be another one. I think there's a lot you could do with uh, the Cathedral Sevilla. uh, Seville. the food would be great. You could have a great tapas restaurant. Uh, you could do something with Alhambra uh, in Granada. Uh, so there's a lot of, I think, architectural cool things. You could maybe even do something from, uh, again, this gets into the politics of Catalonia, but uh, the uh, Sagrada Familia, which is the, the, the church that's still being built in Barcelona. That would be a great one. Um, Thailand, you mentioned. I think uh, Thailand gets a lot of tourism. 
and they have a very distinct culture, and I think they could make for uh, an excellent pavilion. Uh, the the architecture. So uh, we were just in the China Pavilion, and the Buddhism in China, Korea, Japan, and Vietnam is different than the Buddhism you find in Cambodia, Laos, uh, Thailand. Uh, with that's uh, Theravadic Buddhism in those countries, and Mahayana Buddhism in China, Japan, Korea, and the architecture is different. So it's a bit more. Indian influenced, I want to say. Um, plus, you could do something like a floating market, which would be really interesting. Um, that would be a, 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 I think, neat for the pavilion. And you know, yeah, I'm even thinking some of these might even be a better fit in like Animal Kingdom. Uh, you could potentially do something with Asian elephants or tigers. Uh, I don't know if that would be a whole, you know, can of worms that they wouldn't want to open up. Um, mentioned Peru. I think some sort of Machu Picchu. Uh, Switzerland, that would be another mountainous area, um, which would be kind of interesting. I'm also just thinking of countries that have enough money to probably support something. And Russia. Yeah. Russia is a real obvious one. I think like a, uh, a red square uh, with the, you know, uh, small version of the Kremlin and St. Basil's Cathedral. And uh, you could probably have a great Russian restaurant. I think you mentioned Greece. That would be another great one, too. Obviously, some great restaurants you could put there. Greek ruins up the wazoo. Uh, it'd be real easy to, to, I think, you know, think of great stuff for that, a small acropolis. Um, yeah, so I think there's... It would be so great if they would to expand this to more countries. That would... and, and I think they eventually will, because, look, if you look, I mean, here where we are by Africa, there's a lot of room back here. And actually, there's actually a, a, a space, an opening, in between each of the pavilions, except for that small space in between China and Norway. That's the only place that they couldn't uh, fit something in between. And Russia goes back to original plans. There were plans for a Russian, a beautiful uh, Russian pavilion. Some of the concept artwork for that was beautiful. When we get to Japan, Japan was supposed to look different. There were, was supposed to be more mountains here. And as we approach Germany, too, this was supposed to have a, a Rhine River attraction going through it that you don't, people think that you enter from these doors here. Um, on, on, the, on the, the promenade, you actually would have entered into the pavilion itself and gone in those double doors there. Uh, that had never came to be, unfortunately, but was very much, the idea was very much flushed out. But as, you, as we're coming into Germany, again, another country that I've never visited before, <coughs> as you said, uh, this isn't, well, you said it's not really sort of Germany per se. It's more Bavarian. And I think that there's a, you know, um, there's a lot of countries in Europe, Spain and Germany come to mind, that are really, you know, Germany as a country didn't exist until the 19th century. It was a collection of uh, duchies, principalities, and things like that, that were all German-speaking, and they were eventually kind of all unified. And Bavaria had its own king. Um, in fact, uh, this might be a good time to talk about it. The Princess Castle that you see at uh, Magic Kingdom and, and, you know, it's in their logo and everything else, was actually based on Neuschwanstein, which is in Bavaria, which was created by the Mad King Ludwig in the late 19th century and was actually itself not really even a castle castle. It was really just sort of a romanticized version of what they thought a castle would be. You know, that was a lot of the inspiration for building that castle. So does this does this plot does it does this plaza look like something that you would normally find in, in a small Bavarian village? It's kind of over the top. 
Uh, but one of the things, so you'll see the half-timber constructed houses. Uh, so this is the kind that where you see the, the wood kind of in the, the walls. You can actually see timber, and then it's kind of filled in. In Germany, you can find villages that have half-timber construction, but you can't find a lot of original ones because it was destroyed in the war. So in any major city, if you see it, it, it it's reconstructed. I found some cities, though, where you can still find it. Uh, Bamberg, which was in um, Bavaria, is uh, probably the city that comes to mind the most when I see this because it, it's very famous for their beer. Um, and, and not all Germany is beer drinking, believe it or not. There's actually a wine-producing region along the, the Rhine River. Um, the the half-timber construction houses, which you can still see. I Actually, you can see this in eastern Germany, some parts as well. There's a town of Quedlingburg, which was, again, too small to bomb. So uh, a lot of that survived. But, yeah, you definitely get the feel for it. Um, you get the Teutonic Knights, uh, you know, on the, on the buildings. And it has a... Like I said, a much more Bavarian feel. Because if you go to the northern cities, uh, the, the cities that were part of the Hanseatic League, it, it doesn't really have this sort of feel at all. And the restaurant here, which is actually the, the restaurant I ate at when I very first came to Tapcot, is a Bavarian beer hall. Okay. Uh, so that's what it has, the Bavarian-style seating and uh, that kind of food. That, and that was actually my next question. Like, how authentic is that to, if we were to go to Bavaria, would you find a sort of a, a hall like that, same kind of dining experience? If you were to go to Oktoberfest, you will find the Lederhosen wearing... That, that's where you're, you're not going to... The average German isn't going to be going to that kind of place anymore. You will find beer halls, um, but they're not going to have that over-the-top kind of German feeling to them. Uh, but they will have a lot of food. Like, every time I go to a, a Bavarian place, I always get Schweinhoxe, which is just a big pork shank. <laughs> um but yeah, it's been I mean, man. It's been almost twenty years since I I went to the restaurant here. So, yeah, I was there not too long ago, and you know we enjoy we enjoy the food. We enjoy it's a very sort of um, that open air kind of familial type experience. But we, when we were here, we were actually wondering like, is this really a Disney-fied version? Is it or is this maybe if I was a tourist to Bavaria, is this the kind of restaurant that I would eventually eat in? I think if you go during Oktoberfest, that's the kind of experience you're going to see. Uh, the actual restaurants, even the more traditional ones I went in, weren't quite... It, it is a bit Disney-fied. Um, and I think there, too, this is... You know, Germany's a very modern country. So you're going to have to go to some of the smaller cities to really experience this. Yeah, and like you said before, it's not meant to represent a single town or a single location, but sort of an amalgamation of different time periods and different locations around the country. No, and I think they got that part of it relatively right. I mean, a lot of the architectural features are things that you would see. Um, yeah, as opposed to maybe some other countries that we'll visit that very much point to a specific, you know, iconic element or a specific location. And I think as we uh, approach Italy, I think that's actually uh, a really good example of that because obviously Italy is very much based on specific locations or specific elements that you see in, in Italy that you can see across the World Showcase Lagoon, which is one of the reasons why, and you noticed this and commented as soon as you walked in, that it's backwards. Well, yeah, the Italy Pavilion, I think, is centered around St. Mark's Square. And so... That is, that's in Venice, and it's kind of the center of Venice. It's where uh, the Cathedral St. Mark's is. It's where the, uh, the big Campanile bell tower is. And 
I, I think they may have banned it, but a lot of cruise ships would also come by. So you'll see these two pillars over here, mm-hmm. and they have a um, the lion on it with wings. Right. That was the symbol of Venice, and you can go all the way around. So I've seen this in uh, parts of Greece, parts of Croatia, where. Uh, Venice had, you know, quite the the trading empire, and you'll see the Venetian the, the symbol of Venice in a lot of these places. I was in Kotor in Montenegro, and you could see it on the the city walls. So they had uh, quite an influence, and that is is its symbol. And when you're when you're in St. Mark's Square, you'll you'll see kind of basically the same thing. Uh, all the the major elements are there, although they're different sizes and, and the, the proportions different and of course, the um, I think the bell tower is reversed. Right, yeah. and they just did it for aesthetic purposes because the view across the promenade they wanted to be a little bit more. They, they thought it would have been sort of off balanced with uh, the the American adventure on one side and then Germany on uh, the other. And while Italy doesn't have an attraction in it per se, I think architecturally speaking, uh, this and Japan are my two favorite. I just think it's it's so meticulously detailed and so well done and while I, I'm told that it's a representation of the Doge's Palace and the Campanile you as somebody who has seen it in person obviously the, the proportions are different but how do you feel in terms of the detail? Uh, yeah this is much smaller than the actual Doge's Palace and uh, you, you know what they could do to make this actually more realistic is they could flood this with three <laughs> inches of water every night because that's actually what happens in St. Mark's Square um, it, Venice is so low that the, the square actually floods so there's a, a thin layer of water and the other thing they could do is charge $500 for lunch <laughs> if you happen to be in the, in the square which is actually what they do it is Travel tip, if you're going to Venice, never eat in St. Mark's Square. You will pay through the nose to do so. It's ridiculous. And you can see they have other elements, too. They've got uh, the, the statue of Neptune uh, in the back, um, which I like because I think it's, it's really meant to give you sort of a flavor of a bunch of different areas in Italy, not just in Venice. Yeah, so this, that, that doesn't strike me as more Venetian. This strikes me as something more you're, what you're going to see in Rome. Um, uh, the Trevi Fountain is obviously a lot more larger and elaborate than that, but uh, you'll see different smaller fountains uh, that are kind of similar, and this definitely has more the feel of Rome than uh, this section of it does. Yeah, the uh, the Vianopoli Pizzeria is actually a, a relatively new addition. This was not here when it first opened, so you're getting a little bit of Naples, a little bit of Venice, a little bit of Rome, a little bit of Florence, so you get a lot of different flavors, pardon the accidental pun, when I've, been to, I've been to all those cities, but I can't really, other than this obviously being Venice, I could, you, if you were to ask me, like, if there's an architectural difference between Rome and Naples, I couldn't really uh, tell you that much of a difference. But um, didn't they used to have the restaurant here was the restaurant that invented fettuccine Alfredo? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Tutto Italia used to be Alfredo's originally, and then it became Tutto Italia, and they put a little... Uh, there's a small wine bar in the back where you can get any pasta and meats and cheese. That's my favorite place in Walt Disney World. <laughs> there's a little wine bar. You know, I think that the, Italy is one thing where the expectation of what people expect for Italian food, mm-hmm. it's basically pizza pasta. <laughs> and you can certainly find that, you know, in a lot of Italy. But a lot of American Italian food was actually influenced from Sicily. 
because of uh, the immigrants we had were so many of them came from Sicily and then what you find in the north is going to be very different you'll, you'll still find that but um, you'll find a lot of other foods as well so what would be something that you would traditionally find in northern Italy uh, you'll find more stuff based on rice risottos uh, yeah rice is uh, like in the Po Valley uh, was always a big crop and a lot of people don't realize that and of course steak Florentine which is actually just a massive porterhouse steak. Um, I, I was, the first time I was in Florence, I think I survived for three days and nothing but gelato and steak fourteen. In fact, do they have a gelato? I, I'm shocked that they wouldn't have one here. They do. They have a, a gelato cart on the opposite side. Uh, they also have a little wine bar in here as well. So they're not full-blown, but there is a, there's a cart right there that we passed. Oh, I think a massive gelato store would just go over well, like a real... Because when you go to a gelato store uh, stand in Italy, I mean, it, it's heaping over the bins. You know, it's this big pile of it. Oh, wait, let's go look and see then so you can tell me how it compares. Because it, when you say it out loud, it does make perfect sense, especially it does tend to get hot here in Florida. So I went to a, a village called San Gimignano my last trip to Italy, and uh, there was a guy there who, who won the World Gelato Championship. And so I had, in, well, I guess it would be called the world's best gelato. They could, they could have, I mean, this, this whole thing should be gelato. I mean, it would, you would have a much bigger selection. Yeah, so here they have a gelato sandwich, uh, Copa di Nono, Copa Delizia, Copa Mitia, and espresso gelato. But you're saying that, that it would be a much larger... Selection. Just gelato, yeah, yeah, just a huge selection of gelato. And... You know, you see, I, not just in Italy, but you see it in a lot of countries. Gelato has become extremely popular. It's not as big of a deal in the United States yeah. for some reason. Uh, but I think that it's a more thicker than, than ice cream. Uh, I don't know the technical difference. I don't think maybe they whip as much air into it, but it's great. And now I'm hungry. So <laughs> I'm happy that you're turning the conversation to food because that's obviously... Uh, one of the things that I enjoy. And so obviously also, too, on the promenade, you've got uh, a replica of the gondolas and the types of, of piers. Again, is this something that is just more of a tourist destination or something that you would really see? No, this is, in fact, when I... So when you arrive in Venice for the first time, unless you're arriving by cruise ship, you're probably going to come in by train because Venice is an island and uh, you, there's a short causeway to the, the mainland. You get out of the train station and then, boom, you see the canals and everything. My very first thought, I get out the doors of the train station, I see the canal, and my very first thought is, this is just like Epcot. <laughs> Now, it's going to be very interesting to hear your thoughts about the American adventure, right? And, and that's why when I've done this in the past, I've, I've brought people from the U.K. and we've walked through the U.K. And I said, how really much is this like home? And they say, of course, nothing like it at all. So we as Americans who come to the American Adventure Pavilion, well, you know, most people don't have this colonial style, um, certainly not down here in Florida. This is not a, a representation, but obviously... It, it's so diverse, um, it, it had to have been difficult to figure out. So they really went with uh, an, an American history um, type of idea. But when you come to American Adventure and you see this, tell me your thoughts. You know, I, I don't know what else you would do. I think picking uh, the colonial style makes sense. It's a uniquely kind of American thing. I'm guessing, and I, I don't know, I'm guessing that there is... 
elements of Monticello and Mount Vernon that were that went into the development of this, at least, you know, kind of a, a feel. Um, you know, the only other thing I could think of would maybe be like an Old West, you know, if you're doing the American Pavilion. But right. I'm guessing that this is, the purpose of this is also to, one, foreign visitors to, get, to, to introduce them and give them a bit of American history. And then also for American visitors who, quite frankly, probably also don't know a lot of their yeah. own history, so... And I think the American Adventure, I don't know if you remember the American Adventure show, I think it's, for me, it's far and away the best of the, the sit-down, you know, theater anima, animatronic shows, just not just for the technology, but for the story that's told and the music and the quality of uh, the animatronic figures in there. The only thing that I would change about the American Adventure Pavilion is going back to food. They have a, a counter service location here, which has a couple of different items, but it is, for the most part, you know, Hamburgers and hot dogs, which again is made for many people, represent what we as Americans eat every day. But I think there'd be such a great opportunity for a restaurant that could showcase everything from Tex-Mex to Pan-Asian to, you know, clam chowder from the Northeast and really make it be a wide variety of foods. To, to Do you know what I would honestly do? Barbecue. Because barbecue... Uh, barbecue ribs especially, are one of the only uniquely, I think, real American things. Now, other countries obviously have it, but what happened is after the Civil War, a lot of um, former slaves were taken off their land and they were sharecroppers, and the cheapest cut of meat available were the ribs. And what they did is they turned that into an art form. And now we have different competing areas of the United States, which all believe they have the best barbecue. You have Texas, you have Kansas City, you got the Carolinas, you got... Uh, What's the best Memphis? ones? Um, I would go with Kansas City, okay. uh, but I'm from the Midwest. <laughs> but, but that is, I think, very unique, and it's very hard to do. You have to cook ribs properly, you have to cook them a really long time, you have to, um, you know, ideally do it with wood, and I've tried, you know, some places that serve ribs overseas, they're horrible. Mm. And I think for someone who wanted to come to the U.S. to, to get a really, to, to taste real bar, and to actually maybe find some of the guys that own a roadside yeah. barbecue shack, and to bring them here, and maybe just have a rotating thing where they can, like, you know, use the pit or something, that would be fantastic. It's so funny that you say that, because as we're walking towards the opposite side of the pavilion, uh, Duran Flower and Garden Festival and Duran Food and Wine Festival, which is the most wonderful time of year, uh, the American Adventure uh, kiosk, is actually a smokehouse. It's a smokehouse barbecue, and you can smell it from, you know, 100 yards away. And it is, it's excellent barbecue, and they, they are doing exactly what you said. They are, you know, using a super hot wood-burning thing, and it would be in this location here, and it's far and away one of the most popular of the, the marketplaces. So I have to ask you, because I, I haven't been here in a while, uh, with the Hall of Presidents, do they have, is there an Obama does the president actually like do a short? Yeah, yeah. They record it. Yeah, so not here in the American Adventure, but in Hall of Presidents in Magic Kingdom, oh, there is okay, an Obama okay, figure. Okay. Yeah. I forgot. This is um, is it Benjamin Franklin okay. who does the? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So Gary, I, I can tell you, um, Japan. I, I love, love, love this pavilion from the the. The, the different light fixtures on the promenade to the benches, to the architecture, to the kakigori, to the restaurants, to the palace in the back. I just think it's visually stunning, and unfortunately it's walled off. 
but the I love the koi pond and the waterfalls and the bamboo and that's sort of my sacred little secret spot to, to sit up and work and obviously eat um, having been to Japan tell me your thoughts as we stop in front of the kakigori stand uh, oh let's get out of the light so uh, this pagoda reminds me of a couple different ones there is uh, Kyoto is the old uh, imperial capital of Japan and it was actually the U.S. did not bomb Kyoto during the war, precisely so it could preserve a lot of the historic buildings there. And this reminds me of, um, I think it's called the Toji Temple, and there's also the Nara, which was actually the capital before it. You will find a lot of these old buildings. And uh, Haruji, that was the, the name of the place I was thinking of. That's the oldest wooden building in the world. And it's a pagoda very similar in size to this. So, yeah. yeah, this is the, the Goju Noto Pagoda. <clears throat> I don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, but, but it looks like, yeah, I mean, it looks like several. And what a lot of these pagodas will have in common, and you can't see it from the outside, is that there's a single pole, almost like the mast of a ship, mm-hmm. that um, that will carry a lot of the weight of the building, which is why they've been able to survive so many earthquakes, because it actually just kind of goes with the flow of the earthquake. I, I don't know if this was built in, this, in a similar fashion, but uh, yeah. And something else I just noticed, that building in the rear... Right looks it's a Japanese castle mm-hmm. and there's two castles like uh, three there's one in um, uh, Hiroshima which was rebuilt the Hiroshima castle Hameji castle which I also visited and then there's one in Osaka um, there may be others uh, those are the, the three that I saw but the, the white in that style is uh, a quintessential Japanese castle that's very similar yeah this is it's the white Igre castle Shirasagiji Shirasagiji <laughs> So is, it, so is that the name they gave it, or is that named after a specific one? I think it's it's meant to... I think it was sort of inspired by a number, but that's what this castle's called. It's the White Egret Castle. And on the opposite side here is a um, the Shinsenden. It's inspired by the ceremony, ceremonial hall found in the Imperial Palace grounds in Kyoto. Yeah, there you go. Um, the... These, as I mentioned, Japan has not only the oldest building, a wooden building in the world, it also has the largest wooden building in the world, which was actually built in the 18th century, and you can see that in the city of Nara, and uh, obviously much, much smaller, but it kind of reminds me of that too. But, you know, when you see a lot of this sort of stuff, you're not going to see this if you go to Tokyo. I mean, you might find it in a couple places. You go to a temple or something, but for the most part, I mean, Japan is a very modern country, and so this is classical Japanese, it's, you know, like in the American Pavilion. You're not going to see American, you know, buildings like this anymore. So this is is more a throwback to to what the architecture used to be. So if you visit Japan, you're going to actually have to go, I think, to Kyoto or or some other cities to see a lot of this. You're not going to see most of it in Tokyo. Right, so Tokyo is like going to New York. It's a very busy, very bustling, very expensive city to go to. But if you wanted to find a, a, a tea house like that, you could find them at some of the outlying villages. And Yeah, and I think there's a couple. I'm trying to think of there's a temple uh, the, in the Asakusa neighborhood that uh, has a really one of the, like, the largest paper lanterns in the world. Uh, so you, you can find that stuff in Tokyo. But I think it would actually be neat. I was thinking about it before I came here. There are some iconic images in Tokyo, like the... Uh, the Shibuya crossing and you've probably seen photos of it where it's this intersection where everybody just crosses the street at the same time in every direction (laughs) I don't know how you could replicate that it's I-4 that's what I-4 is in Orlando Um, 
<laughs> or even putting like an electronic store here where you can buy if you can't find in the United States. That, that used to be a bigger thing in the 90s. Uh, it's, it's not so much anymore. Uh, or maybe even a modern thing like a cosplay restaurant where you have the, the waiters and the waitresses dress up as like, you know, this is Disney. They have furry animals doing this stuff all the time. So I don't think it would be that big of a stretch, but it would be kind of interesting. Like I think in, in Tokyo, there's a maid restaurant where all of the waitresses are dressed as maids. And there's another one where they're dressed as rabbits and things like that. And as we were coming in before, we were talking about the, the Tory Gate, which you said is obviously one of you know many Tory Gates that you'd find. Uh, the, the best example of this that I've seen, and this is actually pretty good-sized, uh, was in uh, Mayajima, which is just outside of Hiroshima. It's a Shinto uh, temple on an island, and it's quite large. And I even... I, I don't. I think this was built, but at the base of the uh, of the timbers, it looks like they put barnacles, barnacles there, yeah, yeah. and I assume there are actual barnacles <laughs> in the lagoon. Uh, but actually, in Mayajima at low tide, you can actually walk out to the gate hmm. because the tide is so low that you could. It's a mud flat, and so you can actually walk out there. So I'm guessing that that's a touch that the Imagineers put in that certainly was not natural. Yeah, and that's one of the things we were talking about before: is that attention to detail. You know, if they wouldn't have put the barnacles on there. None of us would have known the difference, but you would have seen that and said, well, if you go to Japan, there really should be barnacles down below. And obviously the, um, the lower level of most of the pavilion really is dominated by the Mitsukoshi department store, which was really sort of the first and obviously the largest department store. Is it one that you, is it, is Mitsukoshi like their version of Macy's? Yeah, I'm trying to think if I went there. I, I've heard of it, but I haven't, I don't know if I went there when I was in Tokyo. Um, one of the interesting things is they have uh, is that an anime attraction, right? Which is huge in Japan. One of the things that it is, I visited uh, some comic book stores in Japan, which are very different than American comics, <laughs> and so much. There's there's actually been a huge amount of Japanese influence on the on the U.S. in terms of things like animation. I remember growing up, there were. Uh, cartoons like G-Force, Speed Racer, mm -hmm. that were all Japanese-influenced yeah. type animation. Um, one of the places I went in Japan is a place called Yakushima, which is an island in the far south, south of the main island. And that was the inspiration for the, uh, the animated film Princess Mononoke. And it's a big cedar forest, and you can see elements kind of of it. Um, but I, I highly doubt if they had that in mind in particular. But do they have a sushi restaurant here? They do. Well, you can actually get sushi. You can get sushi in Ketsura Grill, but if you go up to Tokyo Dining, uh, you can get sushi. There's a sushi bar up there. Are you, are you a sushi guy? I am. And in fact, uh, this is something they probably could not replicate. The Skigi Fish Market in Tokyo is the largest fish market in the world. And if you go there very, very early in the morning, like 5 a.m., it, it's an incredible sight because they sell everything. Uh, not just tuna and, and salmon and things like that, but barnacles, sea cucumber, you name it. And um, it's extremely busy, and the sushi restaurant at the Skigi Fish Market is considered by many people to be the best sushi restaurant in the world. But you got to eat breakfast there. <laughs> so there will be a line around the block at 6 in the morning to have sushi at this restaurant that's at the fish market. And um, Well, it doesn't get any fresher than that, so... No. And the other cool thing is they, um, what they do is they, they cut a cross-section of the tuna fin, so it's a circle, and they put it out. And people evaluate the tuna based on that cross-section for fat content and other things. And every so often they'll have a fish that's considered a perfect tuna. 
and there's a bidding war that ensues, and the price can go up to like a half a million dollars for one of these tunas. And then restaurants have the, they don't make any money on it, it's kind of a loss leader, right. but they can claim to have served, you know, a perfect tuna, or they, you can have the honor of coming in and, and having that. I don't know if you ever saw the um, the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Yes. Yeah, and, and I, you don't realize just, you know, the, the science and the, it really the art. And that's what I love about it too, is there's an art form to the, the food in, in Japan. But not just the food. The Japanese do detail very, very well. Uh, small things when it comes down to putting things on a plate or uh, you know even bonsai trees or things like that they, they, they do an excellent job at it um, what they don't do an excellent job at sometimes is the big because like when you're going through Japan if you take the Shinkansen you'll see the landscape and it's just all covered with concrete <laughs> and highways and, and everything else so but but you can find these oases like a park or something or a garden that's just absolutely stunning in the midst of all of that and that's what I love, too, is it, not only is it artwork and it's beautiful, but it's very deliberate, you know, as opposed to China, where the horticulture is very free-flowing, everything in Japan is, is there for a reason, and it has a, a, a significance behind it, um, which I love. And if I could sort of replicate that little area with the bamboo and the waterfalls and the koi pond in my backyard, um, I, I just think it's spectacular. There's a similar uh, aesthetic, if you look at an English garden, uh, versus a French garden. The French gardens were highly manicured with the hedges and everything like that. An English garden tends to be more wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it's kind of a... I wouldn't say it's exactly the same, but it, it's, it, it mirrors the aesthetic sort of between Japan and China, I think. <laughs> Another thing that would be really cool, and maybe they could do this with a China Pavilion, is dragon boat racing. <laughs> <laughs> where you get like you know 18 or 20 guys in one of these big boats paddling and uh, I don't know if there's enough room in the lagoon but so what so what is a, a dragon boat a dragon boat is basically a gigantic canoe uh, if you want to think of like the competitive um, you know like how they have the eight person rowing right well instead of rowing you have a paddle and they just it, they're very large boats like I said they're up to 20 people or more and they they compete against each other It'd actually be a great Olympic sport. <laughs> they actually used to have, you used to be able to canoe in Magic Kingdom. They used to have Davy Crockett Explorer canoes where you had to work, man. You weren't to ride that attraction. You actually had to work it. They still have it uh, seasonally in, uh, in Disneyland, but uh, it, it's no longer here. So, again, just sort of note, as we're walking to Morocco, this big empty space in between, this was supposed to be the location of yet another pavilion, and who knows in the future. Uh, I, I think I think expansion is coming. I think it comes down to finding the right partnership in terms of country and corporation and the dollars to make it happen. Uh, I think that Morocco is oftentimes, for a lot of guests, the ones that people look at and they walk by which is a shame because they'll look and they'll say well there's no attraction here i'm too afraid <laughs> to eat moroccan food and they don't go back into the, the the replica of the city they don't wander the streets but as somebody no i assume that you've been to morocco before and you'll be able to sort of pick out elements that you've seen and and how closely this might tie into what morocco might really look like yeah, I was just in Morocco uh, last year. Uh, I was in Marrakech. I took a tour up the west coast of Africa from Cape Town to Morocco. And the the central building here looks like the, the minaret and the, um, I don't know the actual name of the mosque, but in the Medina of um, Marrakech. 
and I've seen it in, in a couple other places in Morocco as well. And what you'll see in a lot of the, the details, so in Islamic culture, they don't... Um, it's considered idolatry to use images. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of geometric artwork. And I remember having gone uh, into the back, and you can see a little bit on the, on the facade here of this building, uh, where you see intricate designs, and it's a repeated pattern over and over. And you'll also see the same thing in parts of southern Spain, which were conquered by the Moors, which came from Morocco at the time, and have left their imprint, and it's still there today. And you can actually even go to some parts of Latin America and see that. Mm-hmm. So the Moors brought it to Spain. The Spanish then kind of just were used to it, and they brought it to some parts of Latin America. And your, your point about... Um no imagery, right? So there's no pictures of humans or animals because they believe that only Allah can create life, and that's why you're not going to find any pictures here. What we were talking before about sponsorships of the, the nations that came in, this is the only pavilion that's actually sponsored by the country itself. Uh, the king of Morocco was disappointed that the Africa Pavilion never took place, so he took his own money and brought it here and actually sent 19 Malams to come in and craft all of the, the artwork and to, and to do all of the designs and tile work. You know, you were saying people are afraid of Moroccan food, and that's too bad because it's really good. You know, um, they speak Arabic in Morocco, but there is... Arabic is very different in different places. It's almost kind of like Chinese in that Egyptian Arabic is very different than Moroccan Arabic because it's, it's such a, it's a huge area. And so it's, there's a heavy Berber influence. Uh, they were the nomadic people in, in, in North Africa. So you see a, lo- a lot of Berbers, and that gives Morocco its own very unique flavor. And it's very unlike most of the rest of the region. It's a very safe place to travel to. It gets a lot of tourists, period. And tourism is a really important part of their economy. They don't have any oil. Um, so it's, it's a great place to travel. It's a very easy place to travel. So you can go there. Um, there was a heavy French influence in the past, so you'll find a lot of French speakers, but more and more uh, people speaking English in the tourist industry as well. So something like this on the promenade side, these sort of open-air marketplaces like this is something that you commonly find? No. Uh, you would actually... This is far way more fancy. You would literally just see in, in, in uh, the Medina or one of the, the markets... Um, you know, just people with their wares on a table or something. It would be very... So let's very go inside the pavilion, because I think that's what people don't do. They don't go and sort of wander the, the back streets. And obviously, again, it's it's a much more, um, you know, Disney-fied version of it. But I think people just look at the gate, and they don't necessarily cross through the, the threshold. Oh, here's... I mean, the, yeah, now we can see it much, much better, the detail. So in the fountain that we're, we're looking at right now, um, it, look at the, the tile work, and you can see... The geometric details um, that's repeated, and you can see it on the facade of uh, uh, this building. And this, so I went to a, uh, yeah, this is, uh, there is a place I went to called Tituan, which is in northern Morocco, uh, very close to the, the northernmost border. And the Medina there, you could just get lost because it's all, you know, just organically constructed. And it kind of, yeah at least a little bit, has this feeling of being in these back streets with people with their shops like this. Right, so the division of sort of the, the new city and the old city back here. Yeah, and this is definitely, yeah, this, this kind of has a nice feel for that, uh, what you might feel if you're visiting one of those 
when but I would there. imagine there'd be more people on the street, as you said, just sort of with the carpet on the floor and whatever it is they're selling. But not just that, but you'll see people selling pots and pans in one. You'll see people selling shoes. And the shoes are just laid out. It's not like a shoe store like we're north, you know, uh, used to seeing it. Um, so I think that aspect of it, it, I wouldn't even say it's Disney-fied. It's just sort of... You know, they're running a business. So that's kind of, there's a certain way they have to do things with cash registers. Uh, they can't have a guy sitting on a carpet just taking cash. <laughs> and it, and it, as if we would have, couldn't have planned any better, I just overheard somebody walking in and she surprisingly said, well, she goes, wow, this is really pretty. I've never been back here before. Yeah, I, I think people, uh, I'm, I'm a big advocate of, of travel to the Arab you know, countries. Obviously, there are some you don't want to go to right now, um, but I, I think it's not nearly as scary as people make it out to be. And incredibly, incredibly hospitable people. Yeah, they will bend over backwards for you. I think that's reassuring because I think you sometimes think of Arabic countries and, and not knowing the, the climate. You might say, "Well, I can visit the Disney version of Morocco, but it obviously isn't safe enough for me to go or take my family to go visit the real Morocco." I, I think it's very safe. Uh, there was, you know. Some incident that occurred a couple years ago, there was like a small bombing. But quite frankly, I would be willing to bet that there's more tourists killed in Florida every year than (laughs) are killed in Morocco. Um, The difference is, is that we are comfortable with what we know. And something that seems foreign, we're less comfortable with that just because we don't know what it is. And so we tend to be scared of places. And I think we tend to be scared of the food, too. You'd be surprised how many times I tell people, come on, let's go and eat at Restaurant Marrakesh. And they're like, ah, I don't like Moroccan food. I'm like, how do you know? Like, how do you know you don't like Moroccan food? I'm like, plus there's belly dancers. So why would you not want to go? I actually think I love Tangerine Cafe. I love getting a, a plate of, you know, shawarma and just sitting out here and people watching as they go by. Uh, it's not spicy. Right. So to that extent, it's grilled meat, mm-hmm. bread, uh, <laughs> hummus, which is a bean dip basically. Yeah. If you call it bean dip, I think Americans could deal with it. Uh, so that, that's what, and, and uh, pickled vegetables. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they usually often will put out a plate. Um, that, that's kind of the staples of the, of the food and those are all things people eat. So to, to say you don't like it, I don't it's a very basic uh, cuisine. I, the food's pretty good. Yeah, I like it. And I think Restaurant Marrakesh is a great uh, dining experience, too, because you do very much get a flavor not just of the food, but of the culture um, by having the dancers come out and sort of getting a show alongside your, uh, your, your meal as well. I must say I've never actually seen belly dancers, so I don't know how uh, common that is anymore. But, again, I think it's one of those things that if you had a singing cowboy at the American Pavilion, not something you're going to see every day in the United States, but... Culturally, you can kind of get it. So where we are now, this actually would have been the location of the Spain Pavilion. And like I said before, there was actually a uh, there was a sign here on the promenade for because there's a huge location there in the back. Oh, this would... Yeah, th- I, you know, now that I, I, I'm actually looking at this with a different eye, there's like, what, three different places we, we've passed that could easily stick another pavilion at in? Least, yep. And I'm also kind of surprised... I don't know if it was just my memory, but these pavilions seem a little smaller than I thought. Yeah. I, I somehow remember them being bigger. That's because we used to be smaller, right? <laughs> so that was the Strait of Gibraltar, that right there, because you're going from, you know, you, were, you would have been going from uh, Spain over to France. That would actually be neat if they were to build it. <laughs> 
Well, uh, here's a, an interesting thing. So Gibraltar is actually British. And the Spanish, of course, are complaining about the fact that it's theirs and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Strait of Gibraltar is a city called Ceuta, in, surrounded by Morocco in, on the continent of Africa, which is Spanish. Hmm. And the Moroccans use the same arguments the Spanish use against the British <laughs> against the Spanish as to why that should be Moroccan. And the Spanish are like, no, 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 different, different thing. So I've been to Paris once in my life, but I was 16, and I was unfortunately looking at Paris through the eyes of a 16-year-old boy. Um, how many times have you been to, to Paris? Several. Um, I spent a fair amount of time there. And I think this is more a, not so much a recreation of Paris, but maybe a recreation of turn-of-the-century Paris, mm -hmm. or late 19th century Paris, uh, when they had the World Expo and they built the Eiffel Tower. Right. The, it, it definitely has more of a 19th century feel to it. You can still sort of see that if you ever, I don't know if you remember the metro signs they have in Paris, mm -hmm. but they are basically of that style and of the style that you'll see here. Uh, and you're, you're right on point. It, it definitely represents uh, 1870 to 1910 La Belle Epoque, uh, a beautiful time. Yeah, just like how the American Pavilion is kind of a late 18th century, uh, you know, New England, Boston, Philadelphia sort of feel. This is definitely not something you're going to see in Paris today, but uh, especially when you look at, like, the fonts uh, on everything, it, it's, it's very much kind of a, an old score, like what you might see in um, Main Street USA, mm. right? It, the throwback to, to something right. what it This used is not to meant be. to be modern Paris. It's meant right. to be a, a snapshot in time. I suppose you could actually think a lot of the... All the pavilions are like that in a way. Mm. Uh, we probably didn't explicitly say that, but, yeah, they're all sort of what things used to be not really the way they are I don't know though if you're going to go to a small this really is Paris not necessarily a village in France it seems to me very Parisian uh, so I don't know if you're going to find whereas like at the German pavilion I think you could find that in you know elements of that in, in, in small cities and I can think of places in Bavaria that reminded me of that but this yeah, it, it, it's Paris. Yeah, yeah I mean, even there, there's a, a bakery in the back and there's a, an ice cream place in the back where they, they hand make ice cream, which are probably places that you, you could find if you went to France now. But I think the architecture back there very much mimics what you see out front here. I, what I would like to see here is like a, uh, um, I think that my French isn't very good, Master Fromager, like a, a cheese shop master. Because the cheese shops... In, in France, like the high-end cheese shops are astounding. And they produce so many different types of cheeses in France. To just have a, a cheese sampling or something like that where you could taste cheeses that you never, ever knew existed before would be a neat thing to be able to come and do here. And also to have maybe just a, a cart or something. That's, uh, maybe they do it. They serve crepes. They have a, cre a crepe cart right out here next oh, to the wine. There you go. Right. <laughs> uh, I think that would be, a, and I hope they serve Nutella to keep it real. Uh, Nutella is huge in Europe. Yeah, is it really big? Oh yeah, uh, Nutella on a on a crepe. I uh, I've had it several times. You you have now you got me thinking about the cheese. Um, I, I you know I love being able to because cheese is is like wine. There's so many different types and flavors and, and depths of flavor to it. You can if you like cheese, I've really come to start to learn to appreciate. Um, the different kinds of... I would rather have something savory than sweet. Oh, I, I think there's far more variation, actually, in cheese than there is in wine. You can actually... 
if you were to, to, to even give a, a master sommelier, you know, blindfold them and just give them a glass of wine, uh, it might be very difficult for them to tell the grape even. A real good one could probably do it, but you know, maybe it's red or white or sweet or dry or something like that. But with cheese, you can actually usually tell, like, okay, you know, this is this type of cheese. This is Emmentaler or whatever, Roquefort. As we look through some of these countries here, um, we were talking before about the, the the strength of the dollar, and obviously, I know that changes. Are there places that are better values to potentially go and visit using using the American dollar? So we are recording this in February 2015. And right now, things are very good for the dollar. So the dollar compared to the euro, say, at one point was almost like $1.50. It costed $1.50 US to buy one euro. It's now down to $1.12. The American and Canadian dollars were at par recently. And I was just in Canada last week, and it was down to $0.78. Cents. Oh. Uh, I was in South Africa last year, and it was up to, like, almost 12 rand to the dollar. So across the board, the dollar is doing pretty well right now. So there's a lot of places, and the yen. Um, I think the yen now is it's over 100. Maybe it's like 110 even. You can get for the dollar where it was down to 80 at one point. So, yeah, the dollar right now is very strong. It's a very good time to travel internationally. You know, the flip side of that always is when the dollar's weak, more people want to come to the U.S. because it's an affordable trip. And I know a lot of people from London who would book flights to New York with empty suitcases, buy their clothes here, fill their suitcase, and fly back. And the money they saved coming to to the U.S. to shop paid for the price of their ticket. And then they got to hang on to New York. Listen, if you go to the outlet stores here in Orlando, you know that is very much the case for a lot of people. And I know people that do that. They come here, they buy suitcases... They fill them here, and then they return with, with full suitcases full of clothes because they say it actually is much cheaper than buying the same items on their side. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, as an American, I can go somewhere like Southeast Asia, and I remember going to a, uh, a place in Vietnam. And it was just, again, just an open kind of store stand. They just had piles of stuff, and you could buy name-brand clothing for, like, one or two bucks. This is, like, right out of the sweatshop, so it was very cheap. <laughs> So we have made our way uh, to the UK Pavilion, which I know it, I know London doesn't look like this. <laughs> so, um, well, because it, well, God. first of all, this is, this really is England, not the UK, or I, I don't see any evidence of Scotland here. It doesn't look like Edinburgh or Glasgow, uh, Glasgow to me. And you can no, this isn't London, but there are some small English towns still that have, like I said, elements of this that you can see. Like a, like a, a pubs like this you'll find? The the front of this pub with like the uh, the green paint and the lettering, that you'll see everywhere. That actually is, is very similar. And you'll see it in Irish, with Irish pubs too. Actually, everywhere you go in the world, they'll have a very similar facade to like an, an Irish or, or an English pub. Um, the, I think that's Tudor mm-hmm. uh, style You'll still see that in uh, some older buildings. If you go to someplace like Oxford, uh, the buildings are still in that style, so that's not terribly uncommon. Um, I mean, here, this side of the street especially, was really meant to represent a passage of time from the 16, 17, 1800s. So as we were saying before, you'll still find it in some small villages, but it really are, are remnants of um, 
you know, uh, older uh, ar- architecture. Yeah, I don't think you're going to find many thatched roofs. Um, but here, too, you see the half-timber construction uh, that you saw in the Germany pavilion. Um, trying to think if I've seen any places. It could be I just haven't been to the right places in England. Um, a couple of places that this kind of reminds me of is Bath. Um, Bath is uh, kind of a big tourist town. They're um, not far from Stonehenge, but it has a, it's a very kind of quaint English feel to it. Um, I know if we were to go in the back here, you'd probably get a little bit more of a modern sense of what maybe even like a, uh, a London flat facade might look like. Um, and just as a quick aside, I love, I, love the, I love the live entertainment, though. Yeah, I was going to say, this sounds Irish. I don't know, is it technically the England Pavilion or the UK Pavilion? It's the UK Pavilion, um, and there are some, if you look throughout, you'll see some things that, that are meant to represent, um, you know, Ireland and stuff as well, but they're small little details. But if you come here into sort of this um, courtyard, and the architecture here is maybe something a little bit more modern. Uh, this is something you could see in London. Uh, this looks like a typical... Uh, a Dwelling, I've saw tons of different places in London. Yeah, so where this is Upper Regency Street and even across the street on Tudor Lane. Yeah, well, so much of the uh, the, the construction in London took place in the 19th and early 20th century. So, yeah, this sort of stuff you'll see. The thatched roof, not so much, but... So we have made our way almost all the way around the promenade uh, to Canada. And, you know, having recently been to Toronto, I can tell you this looks nothing like Toronto, right? Because, again, Canada is, you know, it's a massive country with a lot of different cultural influences. This is really Western Canada. And the thing I want to, uh, well, obviously there's totem poles, which is British Columbia. But the thing I want to point out is the, uh, the large castle-looking hotel. There's a series of these hotels that were built across Canada by the Canadian Pacific Railway. And they were designed to encourage people to take the train to visit these places. So you'll see the Chateau Frontenac in Quebec City, the Chateau Laurier in Ottawa, the Lake Louise Hotel on Lake Louise in Alberta. And I forget the name of the one. Uh, People probably write in and correct me. That's in Victoria. Um, But basically, they have a very similar designed to this and so I'm guessing this isn't any one particular hotel but could be any any of them I'm guessing it kind of looks like the one from Quebec City a little bit I want to say when you said Chateau Laurier that rang a bell in terms of one of the ones it might have been influenced by and that is uh, right across the canal from uh, the parliament building in Ottawa but the totem poles um, so I actually had the pleasure of seeing the last standing totem poles in the world. And they're in a place, a village called Skungwai in Guayanas National Park in British Columbia. And they're not going to be there much longer. The Haida people that created them believe that totem poles have a life like a person does. They have a beginning and they have an end. And they've made the decision to let them decay. Now, they're building new totem poles. Uh, there are some that, that find their way to museums. Uh, some of the older ones have been you know, preserved that way. But as far as like in situ, standing where they were originally in the village, there's only a couple of them left. Hmm. And um, I don't, they didn't really look like these. Well, the, Maybe the, the, the two on the right are 
sort of Disney created replicas. Well, this one's actually a carved totem this, pole. This yeah. looks this the Haida artwork is this basically looks like it. Uh, same here. Um, if you go to, uh, they used to be called the, the Queen Charlotte Islands. Now it's called Haida Gwaii. They changed the name. Uh, but basically, it's an it's a archipelago of islands. It's northern British Columbia, just south of where the Alaskan panhandle ends. And uh, the Haida people are also in southern Alaska as well. But, yeah, this is, this is artwork. In fact, if I ever got another tattoo, I'd probably get it with, uh, <laughs> with Haida artwork. Because I think it, and some of the Haida uh, artists make a fantastic amount of money. There is a sculpture in the Vancouver airport. Now, what was the guy's name? Bill something. But um, he made millions of dollars. And it's, it, I don't know if it still is, but it's on the $20 Canadian bill. Hmm. Uh, this this sculpture that was made by a Haida artist. So it's. And where are the where are the Haida, like wh- where would you know like this Haida, people culture? Where where would they be? Like what part of Canada? Like I said, they're in British Columbia, and uh, southern Alaska. And in fact, there's a lot of back and forth. I met a lot of Haida people that had dual citizenship, that they had family in southern Alaska, they had uh, family in British Columbia, uh, but definitely coastal people, definitely British Columbia. So I wanted to walk you up and into the back of the pavilion because I think like Morocco, many people just walk by. They look at the, um, the, the hotel building here and don't come all the way back to see uh, the beautiful waterfalls and rock work unless they're going to see Martin Short in the Canada film. This, I, I, I get the impression, reminds me of something you might see in the city of Banff in Alberta, up in the Rocky Mountains. I was just there actually last week. Um, uh, same with the, the rocks. I think this is what you might see in the, uh, or at least reminiscent of what you might see in the Rockies. There are some stunning waterfalls uh, in the Canadian Rockies. It's one of the most picturesque places in the world. So with Canada being so big and so diverse, it's got to, obviously it's hard to try and represent the entire country, but from what I'm gathering from what you said, it sounds like they've really picked some elements from different areas and, and sort of represented them well here. This is Western Canada, definitely. So you're not seeing uh, the Maritimes, which would be a completely different feel. If it was uh, Nova Scotia, Labrador, I think they could actually do a pavilion with that or, or add to this with, with flavors of a maritime fishing village. Okay. Um, I actually... It, cod fishing was banned in Canada, I, th- I think it was 1992... And there was a lot of fishing villages that just died. Like, people just abandoned the village and went to cities. And uh, I actually had the pleasure of visiting one in Labrador, uh, southern Labrador. And it's been preserved, and it's now a... Um, you can actually stay there. It's kind of like a hotel or a series of different buildings you can stay in. That would be a really neat pavilion, uh, that kind of, like, seafaring life. But, no, this is definitely the western Canada, definitely the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, and I, and I like that idea of a fishing village. That goes back to what I was saying about Norway before. The, the post-show area, the unload area where you got out of your boat, was it kind of had that feel, and I, and I like that. And, and as you said that, I'm like, wow, that's really not represented anywhere in any of the pavilions that we've looked at. You know, they could even add on by just doing it a little bit into the lagoon. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily need to take up a lot of space. They could just build some, some buildings on a pier or something and, I think, do a lot of it there. So if, oh, I'm, I'm, 
I'm sure Canada was involved in the in the creation of this, but you know, when I travel, one of the things that always people have a hard time is they can't tell the difference between Americans and Canadians. And quite frankly, <laughs> I can't either, unless you start talking to them and they drop in a boot or something. Or um, so I think they picked something that is uniquely Canadian, just like the American. I don't think there's anything in Canada that would look like what you see in the American pavilion. Yeah, there's maybe something in Alaska or, you know, the Pacific Northwest that would maybe look like this. But I, I think most people would would say this is uniquely Canadian. Yeah, and as we, as we come around the side, you'll see there are the uh, the Victoria Gardens um, as you're on your way down to La Salle, which are beautiful. And I love the fact that they actually change the plantings throughout the year to sort of represent the different seasons. Uh, there are some actually some fantastic gardens in the in the city of Victoria. Uh, I want to say it's the Bukhart Garden. Bouchard, yep, yeah, and um, I, I'm guessing that's what that's probably based on. Again, Western Canada. Although the steakhouse is in French, which supposedly is <laughs> a bit of Quebec, but. Yeah, now, the one thing that I would love if they added to the Canada Pavilion on the promenade here is a stand for poutine, because I could eat poutine all day, all yeah, night. I'm amazed they don't have that. Again, that's a uniquely Canadian food, and it wouldn't be hard, yeah. right? I mean, french fries and dump some gravy and cheese on it. They have no, they have different types of poutine in La Cellie, but from what I understand, it's not really authentic because they don't use actual cheese curds on it. And that is really sort of the, the game changer. That's what real traditional poutine has. I think a lot of Americans don't even know what poutine is. And I think that if they had just a poutine stand and they saw it, you know, it's French fries with cheese and gravy. I think, they, I think Americans could buy into poutine. In New Jersey, we used to call those disco fries because that's what you went and had at the diner at 3 o'clock in the morning after you went... I'm showing my age, but yeah, it was French. It was steak fries with cheese and gravy. But when I went to Toronto, um, actually for Tebex, I went and I walked like eight blocks because I was like, I need to get authentic poutine while I'm here. Yeah, there's a, uh, the term poutinery is actually something you're probably not going to find outside of Canada. So we have done our uh, almost mile and a half walk uh, around the promenade. And I think this was fascinating to hear it from you and to hear your personal stories and how you remember the names of everything is amazing to me. But if you had to sort of just look across and say, you know, this is the one that, that I think is most accurate or most sort of embodies the, the spirit of that country without, you know, putting on the spot, I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, Germany and Japan, maybe. I think that you know, uh, the Italian one is too much, you know, Venice. Uh, so, I mean, it does a good job of that one spot. Likewise, um, yeah, I just think like, in, well, if you look at Germany as Bavaria, mm-hmm. I think it has a good Bavarian feel and the same with, with the Japanese pavilion. Uh, Canada, again, it's just that one small part of Canada, the, the, the Western Canada, and there's so much more to it. I don't know how you'd do the Great Plains, but, <laughs> or if you'd want to. Um, and the Moroccan Pavilion. I, I think that more people should, you know, stop there and give it a try. Especially, uh, there's no reason to be afraid of Moroccan food. Right. I mean, couscous is tiny little pastas. And that's just <laughs> so pick the one. We, we talked about a lot of different potential places. I'm giving you one of these, these spots. I'm giving you the pad to build whatever you want. Take politics and money out of the equation. What do you build? 
Just one pavilion? One pavilion. I think Australia, because that part of the world is not represented at all. But, uh, and I say that because there's elements of India that are currently at the animal kingdom, uh, as well as Africa. So, but Australia is not anywhere really, and I think there are things you could do there that would be unique. There's a lot of European countries, so yeah, you could do Spain, you could do Greece and, and Russia, uh, tossing, you know, more Europe into it. Maybe the other one would be Peru, because I think that would be something that's uh, unique as well. There's nothing from South America here. Cool. Well, I, um, you know, I always love getting to sit and chat with you. We, like you said, we've been talking about doing this for a long, long time. Next time you come back in town, we got to do it again. Maybe we'll go to Animal Kingdom and, and talk about, um, you know, Nepal and India and, and Africa and some of the, the locations that are represented there. But I really want people, if they, and I, I'm hoping they already do know who you are and where to find you, but I want them to, to follow all your stuff because you post phenomenal pictures all the time. And I know you've got ebooks and Twitters and Instagrams. Give me, give me everything, man. Lay it all out. Uh, if you go to my website, you can find links to everything. It's everything-everywhere.com. On Instagram, I'm just everything everywhere, no dash. On Twitter, it's everywhere trip because everything everywhere doesn't fit. Uh, <laughs> on Facebook, uh, again, it's facebook.com slash everything everywhere. Uh, and I'm on Pinterest and Google Plus and, and other things as well. So Cool. I will, uh, I'll put links to everything in the show notes for this week. How's the internet? I can always imagine, I always think like, he's traveling to all these crazy countries. How do you even sometimes find internet? You can always find internet. It's just usually not very good. <laughs> Although, uh, I was in Helsinki a couple weeks ago and the hotel had 100 megabits up and down. Wow. Which was the best I had ever seen anywhere <laughs> in the world. And I used and abused that as much as I could <laughs> while I was there. Cool. Hey, Gary, thank you so much, man. Uh, we definitely have to do this again. De- definitely go and visit everything-everywhere.com and, uh, and come and hopefully take your time and explore World Showcase a little bit longer, um, appreciating what's here and maybe even think about getting on a plane and going to visit it in real life. Time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history or see how well you pay attention to the details in what you see and sometimes even in what you hear. You can then enter for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Before we get to this week's question, let's go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, we took a detailed look at the Walt Disney World Railroad, so I thought it was only appropriate that I asked you a question about the railroad and its history as well. Your question was to tell me, when the old A through E ticket books and coupons were used, what attraction coupon did you need in order to ride the Walt Disney World Railroad? I also gave you a hint and said that depending on when you bought your coupon and when you visited the parks, it might have actually been one of two different levels. For many years and after it opened, it was a D ticket attraction and then later on was also a C ticket attraction. I took either or both of the answers, randomly selected one winner who is playing for all six of my virtual audio walking tours of the park, a copy of my 102 Ways to Save Money for an at Walt Disney World book, and a mystery gift from my personal Disney collection. I'm in the process of purging a lot of my stuff over on eBay. You can visit www.radio.com eBay to see what I have up this week. I'm going to pull one of those items out, include it in your prize package. And last week's winner is 
Heather Lee. So, Heather, congratulations. Please send me your address. I'll send your package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So I thought we would stay in World Showcase and ask you a question about one of the pavilions. And since it opened, The American Adventure, one of my favorite, if not the favorite shows in all of Walt Disney World, has been sponsored by two companies. And actually for a while, they were sponsored by both companies at the same time. Your question this week is to tell me what two corporate brands have been sponsors of The American Adventure Pavilion. You have until Sunday, February 29th, to email your answer to contest at www.radio.com. Again, you're playing for all the audio tours, a copy of the 102 Ways book, and another item that I'll pull from my personal Disney collection. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. I know that your time is your most valuable commodity, and I am so grateful that you are willing to spend it with me as I share my passion for Disney with you. Hope you enjoyed this week's show and that it brought a little bit of Disney magic to you wherever you may be. Don't forget that in addition to the podcast, you can join me every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for www.live.com. You can watch as I do a video broadcast about the week's Walt Disney World news and interact with you in the chat room. Then stay later. We go for about an hour or so and then ask me anything in the lightning round. Also visit our website for our blog, videos, newsletter, and free app for your mobile device. Also want to say quick thanks to everybody who has rated and reviewed my 102 Ways book over on Amazon, including Vern, Jay Daniels, Matthew Mills, and Brett. Really appreciate it. To find out more, order your copy or go to direct link to Amazon. You can visit Disney102.com. If you have a question you want answered on the show, you can email me, lou at wdwradio.com, or call the voicemail. Be heard on the air at 407-900-9391. Please also follow me over on Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest, Facebook. I am all at Lou Mangello, and you can also like the WW Radio page at facebook.com slash Radio. Again, to find out more about how to be part of WW Radio Nation and help support the show, you can visit wdwradio.com slash support. And as much as I love connecting with you online, nothing, I promise you, nothing beats a handshake and a hug. That's why I hope to get a chance to meet you at one of the upcoming Meets of the Month in Walt Disney World. March's Meet has actually been moved one day. It's going to be Sunday, March 8th, Sunday, March 8th, over at Disney's Animal Kingdom at the outdoor seating area of Yak and Yeti from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And the April Meet, already planned out in advance, as I'm getting so excited for Age of Ultron releasing in theaters on May 1st. We are going to have our pre-Age of Ultron shawarma meet over at the Tangerine Cafe. That's going to be Saturday, April 25th, again, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Visit the events page at www.radio.com for more information and a link to how you can RSVP over on Facebook. Anyone and everyone is invited. Come by yourself. Bring the family. It is a lot of fun. Also, I have a number of other meets I'm planning on the road, not in Walt Disney World, including our cruise to Alaska this June, our ninth anniversary Star Wars cruise in February 2016, our on-the-road event in New Orleans just a couple of weeks later, and I'll also be speaking at some conferences in San Diego, Las Vegas, and Fort Worth, Texas this summer. We'll definitely be doing some meetups there as well. 
visit lumangelo.com to find out about some of those other locations and how maybe I can help you build your brand and your business and let you do what you love full time. I do group coaching and one-on-one mentoring and consulting for businesses as well as speaking at conferences and to schools. Again, that's lumangelo.com. Quick thanks to Mouse Fan Travel, my official and recommended travel provider. Fee-free service, exceptional level of personal service. That's their hallmark. They are over at mousefantravel.com. And Celebrations Magazine over at celebrationspress.com. You can subscribe and order back issues of Celebrations Magazine in print and in digital. And as always, my friends, and you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Tell your friends. Tweet out that you're listening. Share links and comment over on Facebook. And please Go and rate and review the show over at iTunes. We have more than 930 reviews. I'd love to get to 1,000 five-star reviews. Quick thanks to some recent reviewers like KVG4567 and Scruffies. Uh, you can visit www.radio.com slash iTunes to get a direct link and find out exactly how to rate and review the show. And finally, and most importantly, I want to say thank you again. You don't know how much it means to me that you take the time out of your day and out of the week to listen and support the show and for the friendship you extend me by doing that. And I really want you to do the same thing, right? To get up every day excited about what you do. So start taking steps, however small they might be, to creating a life that you don't need the vacation from anymore. A life that you're excited about each and every day. And look, if there's some way that I can help you, please let me know. Thank you again. I hope you guys have an amazing week this week. So until next time, see ya. Hello, Lou. This is Mike Grant calling from frigid, snowy Minnesota. Uh, the wife and I will be heading down to uh, the Magic Kingdom and around the world here on Wednesday, coming three days away. And taking the RV down, we'll be staying at Bay Lake Towers for five nights, Beach Club for five nights, and Fort Wilderness for another five nights. Just wanted to say how much we have enjoyed the podcast and the Wednesday night shows here the last couple of months leading up to the departure time. It always seems to extend our vacation by a month or two by listening to the, the podcast and, and Wednesday night in the box. So thanks again, Lou, for all you do. I just wanted to say we'll probably give a call out and let you know how we enjoy the pot roast mac and cheese from the Magic Kingdom when we land in. Talk to you then, Lou. Thanks again for everything you do. Oh, my gosh, Lou. I am blowing up your phone tonight. It is Corey Hall again. Um, you know, I wanted to tag on a question, um, and that is, when my family returns in June to the Walt Disney World Resort, and we are staying at either Port Orleans Riverside or the Caribbean Beach, I haven't decided yet. Um, we're going in June, uh, probably the 13th. Sometime between the 13th and the 26th, we'll be there for about six nights, um, sometime in between there. I'd really love to meet you, uh, <clears throat> maybe have a breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or all three, uh, maybe even, you know, a snack in between each one, you know. We can, we can get up breakfast at, at, like, Crystal Palace, make our way to the Sunshine Sea Terre, and uh, grab some lunch, get another snack, then get dinner. Who, who knows? Um, anyway, uh, Lou, thank you. Um, for accepting my call because uh, I, I know it's going to be 
kind of annoying hearing from the same person over and over and over again. But uh, I'd, I'd really love to meet up. That'd be great. Thanks, Liz. Hello, Lou Mangello. It's Darlene Nagy from West Seneca, New York, and it is now 98 days away from our WDW Radio Disney Alaska Wonder Cruise. And it is currently 48 degrees in Vancouver, and it is actually 23 degrees in West Seneca, New York. So, looks like it will definitely be warmer in Vancouver than it is in New York. I'm hoping that we will get at least into the 60s when we are on the cruise. Um, And I know in your hometown, it's about 81 degrees. So, there you go. I think we need to definitely pack layers. And I'm hoping that we do see a lot of icebergs while we are up in glaciers in Alaska to enjoy the view. And maybe some polar bears or brown bears, (laughs) Um, whales, eagles, that would be fantastic. And I hope everybody has a magical week. Talk to you real soon. You've got a friend in me. Yeah.